It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are seconds away from hearing the daily Locked On podcast you love, but I'd like to tell you about another podcast I think you'll like. Rejecting the Screen, hosted by NBA experts Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko, features provocative interviews with NBA stars and unique perspectives from around the game. Subscribe to Rejecting the Screen wherever you get your podcasts. What should have happened was Kevin come out and say, hey, man, like, this it. Like, this is it. Like, so let's let's do this or yep. this isn't it. You know what I'm saying? But you can't just leave an elephant in a room. Yep. And and be, because what happened was the question came to us every day. Like, the, the every time we spoke to the media, Clay and myself was asked about our contract. Every And it was strictly due to Kevin, you know, because while that was going on, you kind of had Kevin, like, I don't know what I'm going to do next year. Like, and it don't matter, but it does matter because you're not the only person that has to answer that question. And to be quite frank with you, you're honestly the last person that has to answer the question because you don't really say like you don't say much to the media. If anything, you tell them to shut the up. Well, I don't tell them to shut the up. I kind of have a conversation. And so I'm stuck answering that question all the time. And due to that, there was always an elephant in the room amongst us, as opposed to with them, they didn't have that elephant. Welcome to Locked On Warriors, your daily podcast on all things Warriors, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm Wes Goldberg, Warriors writer for the Mercury News, and I am joined by Connell Letourneau from the San Francisco Chronicle and Dieter Kurtenbach from the Mercury News. And this has been, I think, the best season yet of Better Call Saul, which wrapped up this week on Monday night. We're going to talk about that later on. We're also going to get to Connor's Tuesday topic. But first, Connor, my question to you is, why did you ask Draymond Green about Kevin Durant's contract every single day? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I was I was a little surprised to see his quotes. I mean, he was acting like this was a, a major burden he personally had to carry, answering all these questions about his contract situation, having to listen to Clay Thompson getting getting asked about it every day. We asked Draymond maybe twice about it the entire season that season, um, literally twice, and so I know that. Draymond has a has a has a temptation often to to blow things out of proportion and I, I know he was just trying to make a point and I understood the point he was trying to make but factually it is inaccurate. Um, <laughs> he did not have to deal with this enormous burden because because Durant made this decision to not address his free agency right away. To be fair there Connor, uh there you're right in that specifically it was very rarely asked and uh it it was kind of a mountain of a molehill there but the general thought of kevin durant contracts like the amount of questions that were thrown draymond's way that were basically like what's the matter with kevin like why is he being mean to us was pretty much every day and uh and draymond as the most outspoken member of the warriors and the only you know warrior who really gets into back and forths and as he mentioned has conversations with the media in those scrum like situations like he did he he took on those questions and so he you know there might have been an unfair burden in that regard but like kevin kind of put that on him so i'm not sure yeah draymond enjoys that 
Like Draymond's acting yeah. like he like well, if he didn't want to answer the questions, he wouldn't. It's not like all of a sudden Draymond <laughs> doesn't want to be the the you know the loud mouth on the team. Like he's always wanted to play that role, and so mm-hmm. he's never like. And now he's getting on his own Instagram live and talking about the thing like very openly about that apparently he did not want to talk about last year. It's like if you don't want to well, talk about it, why are you talking about it now when nobody's asking you? There's no there's no doubt that all the speculation chatter around Durant's situation was something that was felt every single day, either implicitly or explicitly. Well, yeah, they, the they could, I, I do think they tend to conflate they being the players if they're allowed to go say they as an us, the media like they do conflate basically the blogosphere and just Twitter and things like that with beat reporters with like the random road reporter and then that other random road reporter and right. we all know who we're talking who we're talking about here who's like doesn't really need to be there and is asking dumb questions like they right. do sort of conflate all of it together where I do believe UConn look I I didn't cover the team last year but I was around them and I actually thought that the and I mean this in in no disrespectful way but I thought you guys were very tame just like rated yes. PG with all that stuff compared to what. Uh, like the Miami Heat had to deal with in the Big Three era, with like the the national media like parachuting in and all the the criticism that those teams got. Like these Warriors teams talk about how much criticism like these guys have all the time. And like Steve Kerr was on ESPN saying how like Steph Curry's every move is questioned. I was like, when does anybody ever question anything <laughs> Steph does? Yeah. Well, he's the Connor, golden Connor, child. He's Connor, like, can I get in here just man. before? I, I want Connor's perspective on this as the guy who is on the road every day. But my my hypothesis going off of what you have there, Wes, is that it's easy to also conflate the visiting media or the media in the home market when the Warriors are on the road with us, like the day-to-day 41 games at home, in Connor's case, in your case now, 82 games total media, right? Like there are a bunch of people coming in and out. And if you go to New York or if you're in Indianapolis for that one game a year, like you're going to get all of the basic questions and especially when you're in a market like New York or a market that was looking to get Kevin Durant like you get sort of bombarded with the same stuff that's been covered months before in Oakland in that situation now it's coming back and so I I think if we're all just going to do the conflation thing one it's a lot easier to conflate hundreds of people over the span of an entire country than it is to conflate like the 13 or 14 guys who are actually on the Warriors. But two, like it, 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 it's shitty, but like that, that lumping does happen and they were getting it to a certain degree. And in some cases explicitly not from Connor and not from people like myself and, and people who were around the team on a, a regular or everyday basis, but then also from, you know, national media people parachuting in and from, you know, like the New York daily news when they spend that, you know, a couple days in, in New York and Brooklyn. So I, 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 I get it. I, I have some empathy to, to the scenario at the same time, this is all Kevin's fault and we should hold him accountable. <laughs> I mean, and the funny thing about listening to Draymond's uh, explanation yesterday was there was no mention of the on-court argument that he had with Kevin Durant, which he instigated, which fueled this narrative and fueled this entire conversation for months on end. Um, You're right. Had that not happened, you got like, there would not have been the always asking about it. Like to that degree. When it boils, when the pot boils over in the view of everybody, you can't then say, why was the temperature so high? Like you can't pretend as if the stove wasn't on 10. So he brought, he right. and brought then the, way the he elephant after into the room. Too. You have to ask if there's an ele- he brought the elephant into the room by doing that with Kevin Durant. And as a reporter, if there's an elephant in a room, you have to ask about it for sure. Right. 
Right. And and look, it's it's fascinating to me that we're what, you know, well almost a year removed from Kevin Durant going to Brooklyn and we're still talking about this. I know a, a part of the reason why this is so discussed is because of Ethan Strauss's new book that got in depth with this, but uh one thing that has really resonated with me in the past week is just how strange of a time that all was. I mean, yeah. when you're when you're in it, you you don't feel it because it's just it's just your life. You're just doing it every day. But now having some some distance from it, I look back on that period and I'm just like, that was insanity. It was like being Dude, it was in a toxic. TV show every day. It was absolutely toxic on a day to day basis, and I don't know. I mean, like the the conversations that were had after Kevin Durant scrums or after talking to Kevin Durant in, in a more than one person setting were just bizarre. I mean, we, we, there are certainly strange people to deal with in the NBA. There are peculiar guys. There are guys who don't want to do media, this and that, like he just always came out of <laughs> Kevin Durant scrums and like kind of a crappy mood, especially after the elephant showed up in the room with Draymond in the, in the moment at, at the Staples center. So um, uh, yeah, I'm with you hundred percent. Connor. W- like, weren't the vibes around this team so much better this season, even though they're the worst <laughs> team in the NBA. I wouldn't know. I barely showed up. <laughs> Well, they were. One and thing I will, I, I will yeah. give. Well, I mean, the vibes were the vibes were fine, except like whatever. It, w- it was funny that I do think that you there is just a media question that is asked on for every team, like what what Dieter was talking about, like the road the road media has to like of the of the visiting team, right, or or whatever the home especially team. When of, when, the, when especially when it's the Warriors, by the way. Yeah, like the, the Warriors, and, the capital T, capital W the team that's going to get a last dance sort of thing in 20 years, like th- that yeah. team comes to town. They're going like the, that, that media scrum is going to ask the, the, those basic questions. And this year it wasn't what's up with Kevin Durant and our Draymond green. Are they cool? It was, Hey Steve, how are you dealing with all the losing? And yeah. how many times we had to hear him answer that question. I'm just, I, I imagine Connor over the last few years when you're <laughs> on the, when you've been on the road with this team, it's just what there's just a, th- a theme of the season. And that theme seems to just, you know, be whatever that question is. It's just that one question that these like asked like every freaking day, every time that they're on the road. But I do want to give Draymond a little bit of credit here because I, I appreciate that he noticed that Kevin Durant doesn't say anything in those scrums to go back to those KD scrums. Like he's just he's he's like an Eeyore of a of a person that whole year. And and Draymond realized like every time Kevin Durant even got into a media scrum, he wouldn't say anything anyway. And I actually did appreciate that from Draymond Green because he knows, like, if anybody, if any player in the NBA knows that the media needs something, it's Draymond Green, and he provides that. Like, thank goodness for Draymond Green this last year, right? Because as as nice as the vibes were, Connor, those players, as nice as they were, were terrible quotes other than Draymond Green. (laughs) And so he he gave us a lot of stuff to, to, to chew on, but... Um, so I, you know, I don't mean to just get on here and just blast Draymond Green this whole time because I do appreciate some of the things he does bring to the table as far as just an interview. Oh yeah. Yeah. He understands our relationship with, with the players and, and their relationship with media in a way that a lot of players don't. I respect him for that. Yeah. It sounded like he was blaming Kevin Durant for him having to answer those questions, knowing that those questions needed to be answered. He's like, Kevin, why couldn't you answer the questions less so than like he was blaming the media a little bit for it, but he was mostly blaming Kevin. Well, we all know that he doesn't like Kevin so, anymore, so <laughs> that's well done. It, 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 is a, it is a fair thing to bring up right now, though, on the basis of 
we're talking about a dynastic team in the Bulls. I mean, we have nothing but time to go back and reminisce over great teams. And we still haven't gotten a full answer, one that feels definitive as to why and how the greatest team of a generation broke up. Because the Warriors were fully prepared up until the moment that, that Kevin Durant told everyone he was going to go to Brooklyn. They were they were hoping to bring him back. Uh, there was no, the D'Angelo Russell thing was a break in case of emergency scenario. And um, albeit there weren't very many other options, but uh, they, they did everything that they could in their mind to keep KD around. And they don't even feel like they know what went wrong. You can certainly point to a hundred different things and say, oh, this and that, and you can conflate them and amalgamate them. But at the same time, it's like, why, why is it that this just un- unbelievable juggernaut of a team didn't stick together, that it only lasted three years and only won two, two titles in, in three chances. And um, that ultimately comes down to Kevin, but Draymond, uh, it's not ridiculous for Draymond, a person who pins his legacy to winning to internally wonder why that's the case and to feel some ill will towards them. Uh, it'll be interesting to see right. if other players down the line, as more time has been removed from it and maybe some of the decorum falls away, if they start to share those sentiments. Draymond doesn't have much time for decorum in, in general, so he's just going to tell you what he thinks off the cuff. Um, now, maybe with some introspection, it's going to be a little bit more blunt, but um, I'm very interested to see. I don't think that this is something that's just going to go away forever That because, we again, we just don't have a good bookend to it. And it doesn't help that then Kevin isn't on the court starting a new chapter with the Nets. It's sort of this ambiguous notion of of he's in a weird gap year. So um, this is this is just going to be a thing that we're going to have to revisit every couple of months and perhaps even more frequently than that. If the Warriors do get back to contention, if the Nets do play good basketball, I think we're just going to have to revisit it uh, much more frequently than than you'd expect, because, well, again, we, we right. <laughs> I still don't totally get it. And I think that I don't think it's because yeah. Kevin Durant is so unknowable. That's really it. And it's because yeah. he doesn't really say anything. When he does say something, he's just a, a sourpuss about so many things, and he just it's just like, why are you so upset? I know Connor, like we've talked about yeah. this before. It's just like he just didn't let you in, and look, he doesn't have to, but that's the reason why we're going to keep talking about it. And well, I he contradicts just like say, himself a lot yeah. too. Yeah, so it's exactly. like even when he does talk, you don't really know what he feels because he doesn't seem to know how he feels or understand. His, his own reason for doing things. Um, he, I think he lacks a basic awareness of himself in certain ways. So it's hard to, you know, get in his mind and try to understand him when he doesn't seem to understand himself. I would, before we get out of here, I want to ask you, Connor, what the hell were you looking up just now? What do you mean? I was Somebody responding to was a Slack. I apologize. I apologize. I thought it was a really, <laughs> really good segment. And then like Dieter had this like nice thing going on. And he was in a flow. And then all we do and we just start hearing this like typing. I apologize. I apologize. My boss I'm kind of ruined the segment. I thought it was a really wanna, good segment. My, bo- to, my boss asked me a, a, a time pertinent question. I had to respond. I apologize. To be fair. To be oh, fair, it's not like the first time that Connor Letourneau has gotten in the way of a Kurtenbachian flow, so it's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we and I don't I don't know why we're going to do this now um, because we <laughs> but we do this every Tuesday and Connor gets to come up with a whole segment idea even though I think he lost that. Do I get to, do, do I get right? to type during it? The app, you, you know what? Yes. Type for some reason, I like forgot that we were on Skype and I, I apologize for that. 
just Dieter's going on a rant. It's almost as if he couldn't possibly be doing a podcast. I'm, 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 I'm ending. I'm ending this segment. It was a nice segment, and, and it's ruined. <laughs> this is locked on words. Is there anything more craveable than the smell of McDonald's fries? If someone's hiding an order of fries, they're never hiding it well. It takes one whiff to trigger a fry craving that will only be satisfied the McDonald's way. So stand up if you would like to taste the smell of a McDonald's fry right now. Did you just stand? Because if you did, then you earned yourself a trip to the McDonald's drive through for your own steamy carton of crispy golden goodness. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Cisco. Modern modernization today has the products you need to modernize your workplace, like Wi-Fi booster crystals. Let their metaphysical powers enhance connectivity and spiritually awaken your Internet of Things. At CDW, we get crystals won't modernize your network. You need Cisco Catalyst access points that are Wi-Fi 6 compatible and can help you improve reliability, increase capacity, and reduce latency. Cisco and IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash Cisco. Okay, we're back every Tuesday. Connor comes on the show to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. It's a segment we call the Tuesdays during this time when we are not recording on a daily basis. We, re- we record it on a Tuesday. We air it on a Wednesday. So, Connor, what do you want to talk about today? Yeah, I, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about the last dance documentary because I, obviously it's probably the most hyped docu- sports documentary of all time. Partly because of the substance matter, but also partly because we just have nothing else going on. And I think we just need something to care about and analyze. I mean, this is getting analyzed the way, you know, NBA finals games get analyzed. You're seeing these really in-depth, uh, uh, these really in-depth think pieces on every aspect of this. So um, I think we're coming from it, coming to it, at it from a different, from an interesting angle, just because we did recently cover an NBA dynasty and uh, it, it looks like it, it fell apart. Uh, and so what you're seeing is just how fragile an NBA dynasty is and, and everything that this Bulls team had to endure to accomplish what they accomplished that, that final season. I guess I, I just wanted your guys thoughts on a, what do you think of Steve Kerr's brief cameos so far? And what do you think, you know, his role in, in this documentary is going to end up being and B, what what's just your general takeaway on how this matches up with the hype? Is it is it as good as you expected or or not? Go ahead, Wes. Um, I don't know what Steve, I, Steve Kerr seems to be a very central figure in this whole thing because he's number one. He's very eloquent when he's talking with the media, and he's actually been pretty open about this over the years, mm-hmm. um, in podcast forms and stuff like that about you know how he views that and just like you said, Connor. He's the only one who was maybe who, who was part of maybe the best team since those Jordan Bulls, right? Um, it's certainly one of the most dynastic teams since those Jordan Bulls. So I, I do I think that it's just natural to draw that parallel when you're watching this as somebody who either covers the Warriors or if you're Warriors if you're a Warriors fan, you watch this Jordan documentary and you just you it, I would imagine that you just kind of keep drawing parallels throughout the entire thing. I know certainly I did. That's what my my whole Monday podcast was about those parallels, but. As far as the quality of the of of the documentary, I, I Dieter and I we were talking a little bit before we started recording here. I will just say this: the only thing I care of, like a deep dive about so far through the first two episodes, I want to know what Michael was drinking. 
I want to know what oh, know was in that glass next to the cigar. We know what it, we know what that was. Yeah, so he started a tequila company with the owners of the Celtics and the Bucks, and that that's what he was drinking. Um, Is it just the Michael Jordan tequila? Is it? No, it's it's got some tequila esque name, but uh, that's that's what the celebs do. That's what big money people do. They create. Connor, their- did you want to look that up or? Oh, I can look it up. I'm, Wait, I'm you kidding. you look it up. Please don't type. <laughs> Please don't type. Uh, <laughs> we have phones too, guys. I, I should have I should have sent the Slack on yeah, my okay. phone. Yeah, okay. So it's called uh, Sincoro Tequila, and he owns it. Oh, I'm sorry. Also with Genie Bus. So, oh. And it was uh yeah he was no, that's what he was time with the Lakers. Yeah. So. Right. What did you think of the documentary, Dieter? Well, as a as a child of Chicago who grew up during that era, um, it was. Yeah, I'm extremely excited. I mean, that's the team that made me fall in love with sports in general. And you only remember sort of the big headlines uh, of just because of how old I was at the time. I mean, I was 10 years old. You don't you don't remember details. You don't remember the nuances. You don't understand the business side of things. You just mm-hmm. Michael Jordan is incredible. And Dennis Rodman plays really hard. And Scottie Pippen is really long. Like those are the things that you remember. And you remember how cool and how dominant they were. And it was a incredible point of pride for anyone from Chicago when you left the city because you were automatically associated with the Bulls, which were the coolest thing in the world at the time. And that just made the entire city feel really cool. And it, it still has that resonance. And um, so it's really interesting to get any sort of insight onto it. And it's something that I've certainly sought out in a variety of books and other medias throughout my life. And, and I'm hoping that this can be the most comprehensive one yet. I'll say this, though. Uh, the first two episodes, while I devoured them and enjoyed them, I'm also the the go-to audience, right? Like, I'm of course, I'm the person who's going to watch it. I'm a sports writer, I'm a sports fan, and I'm a Chicagoan. Like, uh, there's no way that I wasn't going to be watching this series. And, and I wasn't underwhelmed from a general sense because it was really good and it got me what I wanted. I'm just not sure that it's, you know, the best documentary I've ever seen in the hype or at least the, the reactionary hype uh, on Twitter and in text messages and stuff was was kind of overboard. And I think, uh, you know, everything in life, I, I like to say, is expectations versus reality. I think it lived up to general expectations. But when you have this reality where there's nothing else on TV and you're getting something that you want in this time where everyone's getting just crapped all over, I, I think that there's a, a little bit of a um, desire to overrate something. So I'm interested in seeing the the next eight episodes to see if they can kind of start to tie together a better narrative uh, because the first two episodes, I, I thought we were talking about the 98 bulls. It seems like we're talking about nothing but backstories, which understandably yeah. you need context. Don't get me wrong, but um, I, I wasn't getting necessarily what I immediately craved. I'm hoping that that stuff starts to show up. And in the stuff that we did get, it seemed a little disjointed and a little cursory uh, overall. So um it's really good. I, I, I obviously would recommend it to anybody. I just don't think it's some masterpiece yet. And that is in line more or less with sort of the reviews that uh, I've now been reading from from people who have seen eight of the 10 episodes, which is what ESPN gave out to people, that it's really good, that you'll enjoy it if this is your sort of thing. But it's not like OJ Made in America, which is a masterpiece of the genre, regardless of if it's a sports movie or not. It just seems like there's so much bricklaying happening in those first two episodes. Mm-hmm. And based on and, and like look, the reporting out there by the people that you like that have seen most of it, 
Uh, they basically say these are the two most boring episodes, and they had oh, that's to great. do some bricklaying because this is also airing on Netflix, right? So this is going to be on Netflix after it, it all airs on ESPN. So if you're going to go back, you know, the ESPN audience is not necessarily the same as the Netflix audience. So I would imagine if you're ne- – got to make it a little bit easier to get into. You need to provide a lot more context for the Netflix viewer than versus the ESPN viewer. Um, as In regards to that context, I really appreciated it actually because oh. – I was only, I don't know, we're talking about that season. I was seven or eight years old, you know, and I knew who Michael Jordan was, but only because I knew about three people when I was that age. Like I knew that there were, I knew like Bill Clinton, Michael Jordan, and Ronald McDonald. And and it's just like, <laughs> and I just knew Michael Jordan because he was like one of the most famous people in the world. But I didn't know, I didn't like, and I knew he was great at basketball, but I didn't know like that Scottie Pippen was making X amount of the, like was getting underpaid and that there was, you know, no salary cap and that Jerry Krause wanted to blow up the team. I didn't know who Phil right. Jackson was. Like, I didn't know any of that stuff. I just like watched, I like to watch Michael Jordan make, you know, the orange ball go through the pretty hoop. And that's all I cared about. So right. uh, for me to go back and so see, and obviously when you go and you read these things, you see the end result of it. But mm-hmm. to kind of go through on a step-by-step basis has been really interesting. That said, I don't know how good this would have done and if the reviews would have been as as good as they were early on had this done originally what was supposed to be in an air during the postseason, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we're just a, a little bit more appreciative because we have nothing right now. Exactly. Well, I, think that's, I think that's something that, that needs to be – stated overall and and i kind of went on a little bit of a twitter twitter tirade i'm not sure if it was this weekend days don't really exist anymore outside of the tuesdays and um, (laughs) it it does make it it should make us more appreciative when live games actually come back and um that we're building up this documentary which is very good fine at the worst that we're building this up like it's the be-all to end-all when a couple of months ago, we were getting a full slate of NFL games and all of their intricate narratives and uh, <laughs> just the craziness on every Sunday, uh, college games and bowl games and stuff. Uh, we were getting a full slate of NBA games every night, every night, uh, even though they were 82 and everyone said, oh, who cares about the regular season, this and that. We were getting uh, just a- another piece of the overall season puzzle uh, from seven seven, eight, nine games every single night. And now that it's been 40 something days when we've had no sports whatsoever and almost two months now where this, this bad boy has been hanging over us and perhaps another couple of months before we get anything domestically here in the United States. uh, It's just a reminder that we should remain appreciative of um, this preponderance of content that we get from that we used to get from sports on a daily basis and that we're going to get once again because this, this i think you're right of, this, this might have been drowned out if it had been in june and this right. is like the week for you because uh, i don't get to write about the nfl draft but i know mm-hmm. you are for the mercury news and uh like this is kind of like the golden week right and, and we know yeah. that it's it's like it's it's not just that the, we have the, the documentary but we're coming off of the premiere of the documentary going into very highly anticipated uh, episodes three and four. And then, and that's on Sunday, just as like the NFL draft is wrapping up. So we're going to have a, like a lot of content to talk about in, in the sports world. And then it's just going to go away <laughs> and we'll still have the Jordan documentaries and stuff. But like every year, right. The, the lead up to the NFL draft is so much more fun than the after stuff of the NFL draft. It's like, Oh, now I know who they picked. I'm over it. Like, yeah. so I, I do think like, we, we all need to – what I'm saying is we should embrace this now 
even though I know the Dolphins are going to screw up the NFL draft, but uh, <laughs> we should, I, I get at least the anticipation of knowing that. Let me ask you guys this before we get into what we're really here to talk about. And it's, um, should we just call it like, should the Warriors just call up the NBA and be like, don't worry about us. Like we we couldn't put people in our stadium anyway. Like we sure as hell don't want to fly to Vegas or the wide world of sports or the Bahamas or something so that we can play seven games that, that don't mean anything. Just put us down as forfeits and we'll call it a day. And I imagine there'd be a lot of other teams that'd be like, yeah, just put us down as forfeits too. But like, let's just, let's just call this bad boy. And if we're going to get more NBA this season, let it be the playoffs and whatever version that they can get it. Wes, what do you think um, on that? I want to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think if you agree to that, then you have to agree to some sort of revenue split that, that bails them out. Um, that, or some just maybe not a revenue split, but you know what I mean? Some sort of payout from the league office where you could just say, you know what, screw the regular season. Let's just go right to the postseason. That would be the only way to do it. Well, let's just say like, what, why would the NBA be so interested in, in finishing out the regular season? I mean, it It's seems kinda, hard. Yeah. I, I just, that, that, that's where I'm at. And so if it seems like the NBA is certain, listen, the NBA has no plan right now. They are certainly looking at plans but nothing is clear i mean there's no there's no way for them to actualize anything at the moment so they're not locking into anything publicly or as far as i can tell behind the scenes as to here's what we're going to do when we get the aok or whatever uh, the, the lack of federalization on this whole thing only exacerbates that problem but like it it just seems ridiculous the warriors would have how many games left in the regular season 17 17 yeah seven home games seven, seven home games seven home games just Which would cost them about 25 million they're not getting and that's people, they're not getting that, people in that stadium regardless like they're going to have to issue refunds no matter what so the only money that they're losing is whatever deal they have with NBC Sports Bay Area for those games and mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know the intricate nature of those contracts i'd venture to say there's a revenue sharing deal to begin with perhaps that's what they're looking for but like There is no way in hell that the Warriors are going to be playing a regular season game at the Chase Center as part of the 2019-2020 season with fans in the stadium. There's not there's a very good chance that they don't have fans in the stadium at the start of the 2020-2021 season, given the way California is handling this, the way that things are going. So we can hope that that's not the case. And there's no reason not to be optimistic towards that because it isn't our call. And, you know, optimism has never hurt anybody in that kind of powerless regard. But like you got seven home games left. Just what are we do? What are we doing here? Like you're I mean, not it's actually all making money. revenue off it's, of those. That's they have already lost so much money that I am I'm imagining that the reason they haven't completely shut down the idea of just because I agree with you just let's get rid of the regular season at least let's just know that it, I think there's value in knowing there's that clarity there exactly I mean we we give the Olympic committee so much crap and look it's not necessarily the same thing because the NBA is doing their part as far as social distancing and, and shutting down team facilities and all these things but um, where the, the Olympics basically didn't do anything. Uh, until they just canceled, um, until they decided that they were thinking about postponing it, and then eventually did. Uh, but it, with, it the, is with, kinda... the, with the NBA, they are already losing so much money that I would imagine it's the owners putting pressure on them to say, "We don't know what's going to happen, so let's just at least keep the option open." Fair. It is kind of funny to to read all the updates on the coronavirus, and you know watch the news and really try to keep a pulse on everything that's going on in the world, and then read these reports about what the NBA wants to do 
or even for, for that matter, professional baseball and, and what have you. And it feels like some of these owners and these leagues are just living in la la land. It's like, you don't have much of a choice, but to, though, right? no, I understand. I mean, so much money is, is on the line. You want to, you want to believe that you can maximize or at least try to, you know, minimize the cost that you're going to be losing. I totally, I totally get that. But I do think at a certain point, it's we're going to be so far delayed that they're going to have to face reality. And I, I, I don't see a world where we can play any more regular season games. And I would be surprised if we can play any postseason games without just completely, you know, changing the NBA calendar long term, which could end up happening. I mean, Peter, do you think we get an NFL game or an NBA game first? That's a great question. Um, I have uh, a, a suspicion that we will get NBA games in July and August, uh, but it will just be playoffs. I think ultimately, maybe the point I'm trying to make via question, because <laughs> I'm an asshole, is, uh, <laughs> is okay, 17 regular season games left, like right now. Right now, if everything's just turned for the better, right? It's supposed to be 75 degrees here in the Bay over the next week, and, and suddenly the, the coronavirus is gone. We no longer need to flatten the curve. You're going to need two weeks at minimum to make sure that nobody has it. You're going to need two weeks of training camp, like the soonest that the NBA could start. And that's if like everything changes for the better today is June one. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the soonest that the NBA could start. Now you have to get through 17 regular season games. Mind you, this is in a single location. This has nothing to do with even the travel options uh, that are available and the complexities of that. And if stadiums are available and all that, um, this is empty stadium, single location. And then you have a calendar that goes from the middle of April. I mean, it, it is a solid two months to do the NBA playoffs under normal circumstances. And yes, while you would have a single location and stuff that can cut down the 17 games that can cut down, you know, uh, certainly the travel time and such the gaps between playoff games. Like you're looking right now, June one, <laughs> you got to do a month to get rid of the regular season games. You got to get two months on top of that. Like you're talking like a month off maybe yeah. before you start the next regular season. And I think that if you're an NBA owner right now, you've already lost all this money. It's a, it's a sunk cost fallacy. I would argue to think that you can somehow make this season work for you in the regular season. If you're a playoff team, you get the playoff games. You're probably not even going to get to host them. Probably you're going to have to put them on a neutral site or whatever. Um, but at least you'll get the, the NBA will get some TV money. You'll get a chance to win a title if you were a team competing for a title. Um, and we can discuss that maybe down the line on, on to what that might sh- that should look like because I don't think seven game seven game seven game seven games is going to no. work as no a model. But alas, that's something for down the line because we got to get rid of these 17 first or whatever. Um, but you, you can't you can't. You cannot cut off your nose to spite your face in regards to if if you can get to a point where in October, middle October, by the way, because they proved up that middle October, you can get that full 82 again. You got you have to protect that over everything else. 17 games of minimal revenue is not worth switching, as, as Connor alluded to, to like a 54 game regular season. That might be better for everybody, might be better for the overall product, but it ain't better for the owners. And they're the ones who call the shots. So the whole thing and, and look, they're coming and up the on a dead one. That's what I'm saying. And the players want to get paid for the games, too. And they've already, like the players union seems to have been working with like the the league as yeah. far as okay how are we going to work with our escrow payments and all these things but look my sense talking with at least just people within the warriors 
I don't think that they if if you had to if they don't expect to play another regular season game, I don't think. They are fully right. preparing for an offseason at this point. And I I I think that they would be surprised if they played another regular season game. And I and I think you're right, Dieter. I just it doesn't make any sense. There's so much more to lose just by playing those seventeen games. It, it would be such a short sighted thing for the league to do that has for a league that typically doesn't do the short sighted thing. Like we can give them credit and we can blame them for a lot of things but they don't typically do the short-sighted thing if anything they are usually a little bit too the, the most short-sighted thing they've done over the last half decade was just not smooth out the salary cap in 2016 mm-hmm. right and so i would be i would be surprised but it is interesting and i think the greater point is why not just announce this now shut it down and start preparations um to just start the postseason but internally they could be already working that way we just don't know it publicly um all right Let's get out of this segment because we do want to talk about Better Call Saul and the season finale that aired this week next. This is Locked on Warriors. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic... This is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant to learn more. Remember to subscribe to new episodes of Locked on Warriors on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you're on iTunes, rate us, review us, say nice things about us. When we get done here, you can tell your smart device to play the most recent episode of other Locked on Network podcasts, including... Locked on fantasy basketball. The season finale of Better Call Saul was on Monday, and I know everyone here on the show watched it and really enjoyed this season in general. But before we break down the episode and talk about what we expect for next season, which is the final season, I want to ask this question to you guys because I think it's it's a deserved one. Um, is Better Call Saul better than Breaking Bad at this point? Because I would I would argue that the tension between Saul Goodman slash Jimmy McGill and Kim Wexler is something that the Breaking Bad series just didn't have like that that romantic tension that breaking bad tension as as far as like the phrasing not the actual show title (laughs) is is to is obviously the driving force of the show and it's so interesting in a way that i don't think the breaking bad series had that sort of interesting connor yeah i i think that this season of better call saul has been uh it's getting we're getting the payoff finally right and i think for a long time a lot of us breaking bad diehards i know both you guys like breaking bad we started watching this show because of breaking bad and you kind of you come into it with the expectation you had for breaking bad which was constant drama entertainment um you know there was always a payoff every other episode at least that's not the case with Better Call Saul, right? So it's been a slower build. It's been a lot more uh, based in social dynamics and and family dynamics and mm-hmm. and things that you know are still interesting and compelling, but maybe not as entertaining, so to speak. But this season, I think you're finally 
you're seeing the payoff. You're seeing things uh, things start to happen that have been a long time coming. And I thought the season finale was phenomenal. The depth of characters, I think, is much richer. And, and yeah. perhaps that's just um, the recency bias of I'm watching it now and uh, you, you seem to forget the nuance and the uh, intricacies of, of Breaking Bad being so far removed from it. And that's something that, especially if we're stuck inside much longer, uh, I, I might have to go back and revisit uh, so that I have a more immediate feeling about it. But um, there, there's something um, beautiful about the situation of sort of knowing the outcome and, and being able to see the end point and then wondering how they're going to get from point A to point B and the ups and downs along the way. Um, it, it does, it, it feels a little heavier in that regard and it allows us to dive in deeper to the nuance because um, we don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to really establish much of the character. We know what it will eventually be. We know who Jimmy McGill is. We know who Saul Goodman is. We don't need to spend episodes building up this character into that. We can instead um, deal with sort of the, the small things that, that make up uh, a very rich character as, as he was in breaking bad and then certainly uh, extrapolated out the acting I think is intrinsically better too. Yes. In, in Better Call Saul. Um, you know, the, there were a reason, couple of weak who, who, links in yeah. Breaking Bad, acting-wise, yeah. I felt, and I don't think there are any weak links uh, in Better Call Saul. I mean, Whoever, you think about, like, Lalo just as the character. Unbelievable. Like, he's incredible. He's incredible. He's incredible. And um, you're crazy already, eyes. He has the crazy <laughs> eyes factor. You're he's already, barely done TV before, too, that actor. Yeah. Well, he's barely been on English TV. I actually looked up his IMDb page today, and it's like, I do not speak Spanish. Um, so, uh, But, he, yeah, he's, he's just this incredible heavy. And, listen, a lot of the cartel stuff doesn't feel as um, engaging to me as the, the Kim and Jimmy and HHM stuff that, that that's going yeah. on, like the lawyer side of things, but he's a scene stealer and yeah. you know, Nacho, you know, Gus. Um, I don't feel like those characters have really been uh, as explored, even though certainly it's more exploration. It's a spinoff. It's a prequel, all that stuff. But um, it's, it, it is, it is just an incredibly rich storytelling experience that that you you're not getting anywhere else and i do think that some of that has to do with the fact that i can't recall a series that was almost you know it, that that was a prequel like this and, and that yeah. was allowed to sort of use that as not as a crutch but it, it's something to hold up one end of it while you could go work on the other side uh for an extended period of time and it allows that other side to be so much more you know, fulfilling and hashed out than it usually would be for a show of this length. And you know, Breaking Bad, I think, was is going to end up being more or less the same length. Um, the, the attention to detail has been incredible, um, as I'm sure you guys are doing as well. You're, you're reading all the analysis after every episode and and kind of seeing seeing where things come from. And the entire Lalo character came from what might have been considered a throwaway line in, in I think, season right. two of Breaking Bad, uh, where they mentioned Lalo and, and he's and uh, uh, Better Saul is being threatened and he he hears Lalo's name and he freaks out. And I don't think that really registered with anyone watching Breaking Bad. But now, you know, they go back and they, they this whole season has been introducing us to, to Lalo, who is quickly becoming, to me, like a, almost a Stringer Bell ca 
caliber character. And like you mm, said, that yeah. he steals the scene every time he's in it because he's just so incredibly compelling. And I think uh, the writing in this season, the writing throughout the whole series has been great, but the writing in this season is particularly incredible because if you think about it, everything that's happened has made sense, but it's been completely unpredictable like there's been so many times right. where i'm like oh my god kim's going down or you know nacho screwed or all these things and it never quite happens that way but it happens in a way that's even more compelling and more which is it's on and it's unbelievable because we like Dieter said before, we know exactly where this is going we know that this ends up in a cinnabon right we know that and so <laughs> it's just like so for us to have that level of of First of all, the degree of difficulty to just create this show and and create this sense with our viewers to have us on the edge of our seat, quite literally, while watching this, and to be so connected to these characters, we know what happens to Saul, but we don't we and we know theoretically, generally speaking, that well we we do know for a fact Kim Wexler is not in Breaking Bad, so something right. happens to her, we just don't know what, and for this entire buildup. For season five, which I thought season five, there was two clear parts. There was part there was the first half where we thought that Kim and, and Saul were were done. Like they were just gonna break up right. and like they wouldn't be able and then the second half is basically Kim breaking bad, which we finally saw in the season right. finale in an unbelievable turn, and where it it, it kind of takes all the things that had happened in season five, but everything throughout the whole series to that point kind of focuses into view a little bit where she has been breaking right in front of us bad, and we hadn't noticed it. And we kept blaming Saul and all these people for doing it, but she was so much. She was doing it under her own volition, very much so. And she is just as instinctual and just as, um, just as sort of uh, um, uh, as, as conniving, as, conniving, and and uh, just attracted to the danger mm. as and impulsive as Saul is, really is. Uh, she just presents it in a very different way. And so, and, and by the way, I just want to say that Ray Seahorn is probably going to win several awards for her performance. She needs to. She's been unbelievable. It's, and we talked about that in one brief aside before we move on with this, but like the eyes acting specifically mm -hmm. in this show, like we talked about the acting is great, but like everybody's eyes make the show. Like Nacho yeah. does so much with, with his, like you could just see. like Facial just expressions, the, yeah. Yeah, you could just see him just being like, I freaking hate everything that's happening, and I and I am completely backed into a corner, and he manages to convey that in every single scene it, he's in. It's interesting you mention that, bursting. because I was talking to my sister about this. My sister's uh, an actress, uh, mainly a stage actress in the D.C. area. She also works for a theater company there. And uh, she was saying you can tell watching this series that a lot of the main, main characters are come from a stage background uh seahorn if you look up her yeah. resume mainly from a stage background broadway and off broadway um the guy who plays nacho varga same thing um and you can you can tell just in terms of how they act because they 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 are communicating so much with their eyes and their facial expressions which is something you're taught in stage to theater um which doesn't necessarily always translate to tv but um they've done a phenomenal job with that that's really interesting because tv acting is is typically you know shoulders up right and and stage acting is whole body but you kind of have to work in reverse to to be successful in, in both and um it, it, i think the overarching point is it, it it does feel kind of cliche but um the amount of times that you say breaking bad 
it, throughout the show, not in a reference to, you know, the other Fitzgilligan show or whatever, but just in the, the sense of they're all antiheroes. They're all yeah. antagonists in their own way. And you're just you're not sure one way, you know, how that's going to stick around. Um, you're not sure you're, you're it, it, it's really wild to just see the ebbs and flows of that sort of a thing. And um, I don't know. I'm, fa- I'm fascinated, what, especially what did you think of Kim's they, turn. Sorry, go ahead. No, what did you think of Kim's turn? Because that's I think I mean, it was surprising um, in a way, but it felt earned to me. And I'm wondering if it felt earned to you. It's definitely earned. Um, the it was necessary. Let's let's first take into account the fact that they don't have some grand story arc for this, as far as as we can tell. Um, Vince Gilligan and, and the writers are kind of <laughs> kind of ba- you know barely scratching this thing out. They didn't have a very clear endpoint as to how to you know, transfer this to, to Breaking Bad. And so they have been developing the characters effectively in real time and uh, knowing that they had to get to a certain end point, but um, not, not, you know, prescribing that specifically throughout. And the, the allure of the Kim Wexler character is, you know, that she's not around at the end, right? Mm-hmm. So you have finality there. Uh, just like you have finality with who Jimmy is, uh, just like you have finality with Mike Ehrmantraut. Like, you know what these guys become. And the ebbs and flows feel heavier because of yeah. that. And it, 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 I think it was on The Ringer today. It was a, a, a fascinating piece of analysis in the sense of it, it wasn't really a turn. It was just a turn in our perception of the Kim Wexler character. Kim That's has right. always been going along with it. In fact, you could argue she was the protagonist or she was, she was the antagonizer that, that got Jimmy to start, you know, pushing the boundaries, but because Jimmy has this reputation and because I guess we're all playing, you know, Jimmy's older brother here. And we always have, we always expect the worst out of him because we know where it all ends up. We know that he ends up going, you know, full sleaze. We know that he can't be redeemed, that it's beyond, that he's beyond help. Uh, just like his brother was always saying, just like Chuck was always saying, mm-hmm. we attribute all of Kim's bad actions with Jimmy being proximate in her life to Jimmy. That's Jimmy's fault. That's Jimmy's influence. Where in fact, it, it, you can blame Kim if you don't know the outcome for, for Jimmy McGill. If you don't know that he becomes so good, you can blame Kim for being the bad influence the entire time. So that turn uh, was necessary in the sense of it, it, it forced all of us, if we can view it from that lens, to understand that she's just as bad, if not worse. Yeah. Because she has no this, excuse. This, this series almost plays to the it almost breaks the fourth wall without actually doing it and that it plays mm-hmm. to the audience's expectations so it's, it, it is kind of taunting us throughout right yeah. in a, in a indirect cool. way and it's and that's to me what makes it so good again it is such a high wire thing what they are doing taking a thing that we already know generally speaking how it ends and making us completely on the edge of our seat Did, and surprised the entire time didn't you guys fully expect one of the main characters yes. to die last night yeah and then 100%. And then if you had heard before the episode that none of them die, and you wouldn't, I don't want to say disappointed, but you'd be like, oh, really? That's kind of like think about disappointing. What you're saying. Think about what you're saying, though, before, Connor. Like, we all uh, attribute this season and that season finale to be extremely gratifying. Right. And yet, no one died. 
Yeah, right? exactly. And, and like, that's and there was there was no dramatic, you know, uh, shoot 'em up payoff, or there was no well, massive twist died. that it's came out. Yeah, name. but you know, listen, they 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 didn't have names. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, it, it was the 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 payoffs for that all came through conversation. It all came through the script and it, it wasn't some gotcha moment like that's. And, and we didn't really have that, that much in, in the penultimate episode. It, it, it is. Su- and that's where really the nuance comes in to be that gripping, to be that thrilling without the actual, you know, pulse, you know, heart racing moments of, Oh, will they, or will they not make it this and that there's not some grand, you know, chaos happening at the end is uh, really quite incredible. Uh, and that's why I think it. That's why I think this is better than Breaking Bad because you're right. Those the payoff moments in Breaking Bad were Gus Fring's face being blown off, right? Like those were the payoffs, like the giant explosions and the giant happenings. Where in Better Call Saul, you're right. Like the payoff is all, it's all, it's, it's all just within dialogue. Hotel, <laughs> you know, it's, like it, think it, about how subtle that is. Yeah, my my. My favorite show of all time was Mad Men, not because I was some, you know, frat bro trying to be the next Don Draper, but because I thought the dialogue was very much that. Like, all the payoff was in dialogue and human relationships and twists and turns within those relationships. And that was everything that was so great about that show. And it doesn't really matter what setting it is, but as long as you have that great dialogue and the, and the character development and that depth of character that we've been talking about, I think you can get great payoff. And in, it's not cheapened by some sort of explosion or something. Not to say that that stuff isn't great. Like... Gus Fring no, burning it, down all those restaurants this season was fun. But, and, you know, the, the Lalo going full, like, Rambo in Mexico was, like, that was cool. But the, that wasn't, like, there, it's noticeable why we're not talking about that as the path. What we're talking about is a hotel room scene between Kim and Jimmy. It's wild. Um, all right. Let's get out of here with just one thing. What do you guys expect or hope for or just take this wherever you want for next season of Better Call Saul? Connor. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm really curious what happens with uh, with the relationship between Kim and Jimmy, uh, because we know that Kim doesn't end up in uh, we know that Kim doesn't end up in his in his world or in his his life by the time we get to the Breaking Bad universe. So, you know, is, is she did, do they just go their separate ways? Does she die? Like, I I'm, I'm feel very invested in her story at this point and also feel invested in nacho vargas story um he might actually be my favorite character in this Mm. entire series uh i think he's so nuanced and i think the role he plays uh is he's the actor who who plays him just just really hits it on the on on the head so um i want to see what happens with him and then um it sounds like lalo stays alive uh because he he see, he seemingly was alive when they mentioned him in, in Breaking Bad. So, you know, what happens with him? I guess I guess I just want to know what happens, which is a really dumb <laughs> I think answer, Na- I do but... think that I do think that Nacho survives for a little bit longer than maybe we had all expected going into this finale because of that sit down with uh what's his face, the Kingpin guy. Uh was very that was like a long meeting where he was basically planning out how he's gonna take the 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 cartel over in Albuquerque and all these things like they wouldn't have done all of that you know bricklaying just to like shoot him in the forehead in like the first 15 minutes of you know season six mm-hmm. so uh, I do think he'll be around for a little bit longer uh, Dieter we'll get out of here I know you like conspiracy theories and just general theories um, do do are we just building up to um, 
Jimmy McGill, whatever his new name is, as like the Cinnabon manager, Gene, whatever it is, um, handing over um, a Cinnabon to Kim Wexler. Yeah, that, that's that is a very popular theory. I think that it will be more nuanced than that, right? Like that that feels like too direct for the Breaking Bad universe, where I, I think it's uh, she moves back to Nebraska. And she's in the mall in Omaha and Jimmy thinks he sees her, but he can't, he can't do anything. And wouldn't that wow. be more painful than anything else at all? He doesn't really know, but he's pretty sure, but he that won't happen because that to. would require her walking past a Cinnabon and not going in. And that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I, I wonder, I wonder how the, the Cinnabons in Omaha are faring since the show came out. Love to read that story. That's a great place to end the show. Uh, this has been as Locked usually on. Connor's thoughts on Cinnabon. <laughs> this has been locked on Better Call Saul. Thank slash locked on Warriors. Thanks for listening, everybody. Dieter Connor, thanks a ton for coming on. This is, I think, a first. I, I think that all of us were on the same Locked On Warriors show at the same time. That I had both of you on at the same time. Um, and I think that went well, other than Connor almost running it with his typing. Uh, <laughs> but we'll get out of here on this. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. San Jose Sharks hockey is back, and we've got you covered five days a week at Locked On Sharks. I'm Kyle Demetrius. I'm JD Young. I'm Eric Fowl. Together, we make sure you're never without your Sharks programming. Will the Sharks make a trade for a right winger? We got you covered. Will Eric Carlson's groin hold up for the entire season? We've got you covered. Whatever happens with Team Teal every day, we've got you covered at Locked On Sharks five days a week on the Locked On Podcast Network. This is Josh Lloyd, the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast, the number one fantasy basketball podcast in the world. If you're looking for information regarding fantasy basketball, recaps of the NBA, this is the show for you. We are heading into the offseason and starting to get ready for the 2020-2021 fantasy season. We'll have all the information on what happens through the rest of the playoffs, free agency, the NBA draft, and then heading into a big 2021 season. So make sure you're checking out the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast.